海の青さに空の青南の風に緑葉の場所は情けに手を招く常夏の国は下の島内な Welcome to the Kingless Generation. A podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and this time I have a premium episode for you on which I took a ramble through the botanical gardens of the University of Tokyo, which is a beautiful setting. I urge you to look up pictures of that. I think I may do that again. This might be a regular thing. Uh, not least because this time I used the wrong microphone、uh, somehow, and so the quality is absolute shit. At the last moment, I accidentally switched to the mic on my headset, which was rolling around in the folds of my Palestinian kufiya the whole damn time. I have a decent microphone for walking around outside with my phone, and I wanted to capture the atmospherics of the garden. And the whole、uh, ecosystem there.、Uh, so we'll definitely have to do it again. For now, here's this one. Just a quick summary as well for the non Patreon preview. It's a wide ranging conversation, but maybe a main topic would be the, one of the two Gerald Horn books.、Uh, Gerald Horn being the distinguished black American. A、uh, scholar who has written about 80 books、uh, covering the development of capitalism, white supremacy, from the early modern through the modern and the present day.、Uh, the, the 500 year world system, we'll say, right? I mean, of course, this podcast, we talk about the 5,000 year world system, the 50,000 year world system as well. But that 500 year level、uh, is where Gerald Horn is. All over that. And、uh, so he has two books about Japan and about its relationship to white supremacy, right?、Uh, the, the critique of white supremacy and the way that, I mean, it makes you realize how much Asian peoples, Japan in particular,、uh, were seen as, it were discriminated against at least as much as sort of like anti blackness, the kind of thing we would associate with only anti blackness today, right? And,、um, you know, I come around to a place where,、uh, you know, of course, Gerald Horn's work cries out to be supplemented with a lot of the ways in which Japan reproduced white supremacy within its empire.、Uh, he is very much alive to that. Uh, although he's not specifically studying that. He's kind of saying, we're going to put communism versus capitalism to the side, and we're going to talk about the ways in which that this was、uh, only looking at the, the racial element was a, a progressive struggle in some ways, right?、Um, and it, what it opens up for me is like, you can, you, you've got to look the next step, then, one of many next steps you could take is to look at how. 
it went wrong, right? Where did it go, right? Because it was touch and go. You know, I, I want to read this together with Tatiana Linkoeva's Revolution Goes East as well to look at how Japan in modernizing it wasn't a foregone conclusion that it would embrace russophobia and a sort of a certain kind of self-hating pan-asianism there's a real self-hating element to it right the asian is is repudiated uh, at the same time that it is uplifted this is really weird kind of um well dialectical relationship there between uh embrace and rejection of that identity and it didn't have to go that way and it doesn't have to go that way in in the future right japan presents us with a really one of the thorniest situations there with a and it it goes together with zionism as well right examples of ways that formerly racialized people well so you know because uh, of course then that another big question is the kind of honorary whiteness that japan uh claims and perhaps achieves sometimes is recognized as possessing in the post-war and that's really the, that's another sort of background that really really uh I, I find myself wanting to fill in and i do fill in in this episode uh, to the best of my ability while, while walking in a forest and another thing to talk about is just the effect, the propaganda effect that the Empire of Japan and its direct agents within the United States had on the black community. They helped uh, inspire uh, quite a lot of different things. You know, you could maybe argue that without the Empire of Japan, there wouldn't have been the Nation of Islam. There wouldn't have been uh, Malcolm X right uh there there was uh quite a lot of direct contact there and certain things that you know even on the black american side might not have been super left wing uh but they were in a dialectical relationship and historically then did help to give birth to all kinds of subsequent developments in the black american tradition some of which are just some of the best things that i think you can see uh, anywhere, the, the Black Panther Party, for example. So basically, directly and indirectly, just on the military plane, just on the racial plane, we're looking at the ways that the Empire of Japan was, or at least initially could have been, a revolutionary project of some kind. And it's one of many examples of sort of how do you get free and people have tried and, and failed, and, and most ultimately, right, we, haven't, we still haven't achieved full communism, at least since, uh, you know, Cahokia fell, or uh, Lake Titicaca, or, uh, you know, there are many times that human beings have achieved full communism for their time and place, uh, but we haven't done it in, certainly not escaped the 500-year world system that Professor Horn deals with yet, but many people have tried. And you've ended up with the Soviet Union. You've ended up with Zionism. You've ended up with uh, the fucking Irish Free State. You know, <laughs> like, what do we have now? We're in the fucking EU. We're uh, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, 
is giving uh, billions of, in weapons to fucking Ukraine now and censoring Twitter on behalf of NATO in Ireland. And the Taoiseach actually just went to Washington for the customary ceremony of on Paddy's Day to bring a bowl of fresh shamrocks for the American president in this tributary ritual that we have. Uh, you know, I could go on. So each of these attempts to get free, which Japan, the Japanese empire also was that, uh, very sincerely for many people, uh, you know, at, at many times, sometimes, for example, for Korean collaborators, I've talked about this with, uh, Imamura Eiji's traveling companion. I have an, I have an episode on that, that you can go back and listen to. Uh, the Japanese Empire was a vehicle for all kinds of Korean, uh, a, a newly formed Korean national bourgeoisie to try to uh, develop a kind of national identity of some kind to get to get free to right actualize. However, doomed an effort we may uh, see that to have been in some ultimate sense. You know, I wonder if Professor Horn, if you asked him. Maybe I'll get a chance to ask him someday. Uh, would you stick by the division of revolution and counter-revolution, right? Is there a firm line there that you can draw? I mean, I, I suspect you would agree that ultimately every re revolution that we've had against the 500-year world system so far has become a counter-revolution at some point, Right. And some of the, I mean, he's written, of course, two different books about different, uh, first the uh, counter-revolution of 1776, about the American Revolution, which absolutely was uh, mainly undertaken to perpetuate the systems of racial slavery and indigenous dispossession of land. And then another one about the independent state of Texas, Right. As another kind of counter revolution. And yeah, those are I mean, there's there's not many redeeming features that in found there uh, the moment that those become discrete phenomena. Right. So those definitely are counter revolutions in a way that the Empire of Japan uh, maybe was not at certain moments for certain people and in certain ways. Right. So in that sense, you know, like we'd say in Buddhism, uh, it's an upaya. It's an expedient means. It's definitely a useful concept to pick up and use, even if it's not some kind of absolute reality. But on the other hand, maybe on some ultimate level, it really is counter revolutions all the way down. The ones that haven't s succeeded yet or it's revolutions all the way down. I don't know. That's another binary itself that will ultimately have to be moved beyond. But in any case, one of our big tasks in doing revolutionary history and one of our core interests here in the kingless generation is looking at all the airplanes, model airplanes that we've thrown up into the sky and all the, all the Archaeopteryxes trying to flap their wings and fly and see what went right and what went wrong. And we have here this really interesting argument for a very limited and particular kind of inclusion of the Empire of Japan in that canon of revolutionary history. So, without further ado, here we are in the forest.
and I'm speaking to you today from the Botanical Gardens of the University of Tokyo. I'm standing under some very tall basho trees whose leaves I think you can hear sort of striking one another like great uh, wind chimes, paper wind chimes. It's a very fibrous paper-like bark that these trees have. Basho is, it's a kind of a banana, I think, but you don't, people don't eat it. Uh, rather, the leaves are used for fabric to make a kind of burlap fabric. Uh, that would be particularly in the Mewtwo kingdom. That was a great specialty. And so there is a kind of uh, Gyukyuen or, or Uchinanchu, you know, Okinawa nationalist song or a kind of national anthem. I only know lyrics for it in Japanese. But it goes uh, something like Umi no Aosani Sora no And so that's all, it, I mean, it's known as Bashofu, right? And it's all about the, the Basho tree beckoning uh, gently in the, in the wind, in the southern wind uh, against the blue of the sky and the blue of the ocean. Very beautiful song. A very sad uh, history of colonialism that the people of Okinawa have had to endure. And may soon, that, that story may soon continue, I'm very afraid. Uh, but hey, today, let's, uh, here we are walking around in a beautiful botanical garden. It's spring. Everything related to spring happened quite a bit early. Uh, which feels good, but of course you get that, that little climate change uh, fear at the, at the other side of that. One, one, uh, <laughs> one worries, you know, how many, how many more springs are there going to be. Uh, there may be a limit to that, but we will have to fight through uh, whatever it is that comes whatever kinds of climate changes, whatever kinds of changes of world uh, upheavals and revolutions come. Uh, but we know that many, many generations of people have fought through similar things in the past. We'll make it in some way, shape, or form. And what better place to, to realize that than a botanical garden like this one. This has been around. It's a little patch of Tokyo that has been kept in some ways a pristine shape. The forest here is kind of primeval forest for this area. Uh, however, it also has had planted into it specimens of all different kinds of plants 
from around Japan and the world. There's even, uh, I think there's a graft of Newton's apple tree. They probably keep an apple around that has something, some kind of legendary association with Isaac Newton, isn't it? There's things like that. But it has been a botanical garden originally for medicines, for growing herbal medicines uh, for the Tokugawa shogunate. I think it might have been founded in the 18th century or something. And it continues to this day. We have uh, labels on all the different trees that we're passing here. We're now, I'm now going up a mountain path into a bit of mountain, mountain ecosystem here. And the path is strewn with camellia flowers. Camellia flowers are this bright red flower and um, they fall all at once. And so they are associated with like samurai honor because, you know, in extremis, the samurai loses his head. And so that blossom dropping off all at once uh, from the tree uh, gives it a symbolic association with uh, the samurai and, or a warrior or honor and so on. Uh, beautiful uh, stone path here. We can hear all kinds of birds. Do we hear? I, th I hear insects as well. There's pond and marshland below this. I think I'd like to stay on the mountain path because it's nice and shady. It's actually quite warm now. I think these days it's been getting up to about 20 degrees Celsius, which is like 70 Fahrenheit. The enoki tree. There are enoki mushrooms, of course, but that, that's a mushroom that would just be parasitic on this particular kind of tree, right? We have the mizuki tree. These all have. Uh, I don't actually know English names for a lot of these things. So I apologize. You may have to look them up. You could look them up and find out what they are in English, I'm sure. All kinds of maple trees, of course. The maple leaves here are very small. It's like a little size of a little coin, right? I think people do get Japanese maple trees over in Turtle Island as well, certainly. I think I have seen that jogging around. Last time I was in Turtle Island was when I was finishing up my dissertation. And I would jog all over the place around the countryside there. So I've been reading, these days I'm fiercely reading Gerald Horn's books on Japan, which are super interesting and, and really super unique. I think there's, they open up, in fact, a, a vast area of poorly represented uh, subject matter, which has to do with uh, the race element in World War II. And, of course, World War II was largely a battle between fascism and communism, or just between capitalism and communism. Again, you know, I, I kind, of, kind of wonder if fascism is actually a word like uh, 
crony capitalism that we should just retire because it it suggests that there is some other kind of capitalism that's not so bad and this is just the really bad kind, right? But, uh, um, I don't know about that uh, because fascism, right? I think you you can agree that fascism is a is a necessary consequence or it is a, a phase that capitalism gets into in its later stages when it's approaching a more apocalyptic phase and we're definitely very much there again and uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to talk about I mean that would be like saying I planted a, a lot of uh, I don't know I planted a, a plant that at a phase in its life cycle it will produce uh, you know nasty noxious vapors or something and you're getting to the stage now when the nasty vapors are going to come out or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, we've, we've planted, we've sowed these seeds already. And uh, now we're apprehensive. Oh, I don't want it to go to this next phase of this thing that it's inevitably going to go into. Uh, as if what we had earlier was something that we could keep uh, forever. Of course, that's not the case now is it right so as if we uh, as dialectical materialists who uh, have a, a broad view of history you know should we be talking about creeping fascism or something I mean isn't that more of a liberal uh, desire to hold on to the class compromise the post-war welfare state and all of that it's the kind of thing that I would think of but right but uh, so World War II was also really important in terms of uh, the history of white supremacy. And that's what Gerald Horn in, uh, you know, I've only read snippets of the second one. The first one is called Race War, uh, the British Empire and, the, and Japan in World War II or something like this. It's basically about the the underappreciated revolutionary character, racially speaking, you know, leaving aside actually fascism and communism. Uh, Professor Horn certainly is a very principled communist and has written more books than almost anyone else, uh, period, but also more books about labor struggles and labor unions and red scares and all this sort of thing. So. You know, that's, that's his usual bread and butter. That's very much his wheelhouse. But he's leaving that for these books. And he's getting into the, the race aspect of World War II. Uh, in which, and normally, if you think about race in World War II, maybe you'd think about anti-Semitism and uh, the Holocaust. And that is very important, and that is related. Right, isn't it? You know, because to, in the sense that um, so the thing that is underappreciated is the extent to which Japan uh, and other Asian nations were perceived in ways very similar uh, to anti-blackness by uh, white societies. Right at this time, so it is not. Uh, now, the, the honorary whiteness that Japan has achieved in the post-war, right, and the way that Japan has embraced uh, 
fully, literally an Anglo-American white supremacy, right? It would be a mainstream, that is a mainstream Japanese vibe to have now, uh, to unironically, right? And I'll, I'll get to that. There's an amazing thing to say about this. Uh, but that's, that's the post-war. So Professor Horn doesn't get into this, actually. And that's a place that I, I would love to go um, or see someone go. You know, I'm not necessarily the person to do this on a professional level. But that's a book that I want to read, is how did Japan go from uh, World War II being like uh, representative of almost like a kind of racial common turn is, is what uh, Horn is really getting at. Right. They had agents all over America who would typically marry a black woman. Let me add, they would also usually work as drivers or cooks for white people and then be able to collect intelligence in this way. And start attending black meetings. Uh, you know, very often it would be Garveyite, uh, more kind of right wing, uh, you know, not... Sometimes reaction and some, sometimes, right, that's a complicated thing. But, um, like, not common term, not uh, communist organizations, but more sort of nationalist, black nationalist organizations. They would actively go to these places and speak, and we know all about this because the FBI was right on their tail, and they were uh, trying, you know, they didn't have a lot of informants. That's another thing. Uh, and that, too, speaks to the higher pitch of the racial struggle at that point, of the, of the white supremacist struggle, because it actually quite weakened Anglo-American imperialism to have this race divide, and you still very much had uh, groups that had no compradors, they had no agents, they had no informants, right? Now, you kind of have... Um, you know, there's, uh, oh, I was just listening to um, Kevin Rashid Johnson uh, give a really long uh, talk. I don't know how they got that, given that, uh, you know, he had to be on some kind of janky prison phone to talk to Rev Left, but somehow they got a, him on a Zoom call, and he was talking for fucking hours on uh, the Politics in Command podcast. And, uh, you know, they don't, so, so uh, and, and he, what he was talking about, uh, and one of the best parts of that, for me, anyway, that I, I learned a lot from, is about revolutionary intercommunalism. Uh, and, right, this is Huey P. Newton's theory. What we have currently is reactionary intercommunalism. Right. Reactionary intercommunalism means that there are no independent nations anymore and no national group is in control of its own productive forces or means of production uh, at all. And there's a one, I mean, you know, uh, anti-Semites would, uh, sometimes anti-Semites, yeah, but a certain kind of conservative uh, right-wing, right, right-wing uh, conspiracy imagination fears a one-world government, but of course that's what we already have. The Anglo-American establishment has just done, has done exactly that, and they, uh, one of their big ops is to train people to fear uh, 
that some shadowy group, uh, sometimes the Jews, you know, for the anti-Semitic version, uh, but uh, that's the protocols, right? Protocols of the elders of Zion. Um, look for more on that soon, actually, on this channel. I have a wonderful uh, thing coming up to do with that. Uh, but for our purposes here, just I'll draw your attention to the fact that the point of that book, which is obscured in many places, um, not least Zionist, uh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm doing research, you know, one runs across Zionist books that are dealing with the protocols. And the, the weird thing about that is that they're very invested in, in portraying communists as being anti-Semitic. Uh, when historically, of course, the exact opposite was the case. And so, and they, uh, they, one thing that they also have to do with respect to the protocols, I didn't realize this, but they have to pretend that the protocols is not about don't be a communist. They have to pretend that the protocols says don't found the state of Israel. Uh, they have to pretend that what it was really saying is, oh no, you know, don't, don't found the Hedenstadt and and um, you know join the <laughs> join the world imperialist uh, system as a client state and right uh, an arm of Anglo-American imperialism in a relatively hard to dominate region like the Middle East right and in this respect I've said before that I think Japan serves a very similar role here in East Asia uh, today right well but of course that's another post log right what was actually happening during the war uh, they were sending so many agents over, you know, they had people all over the place and it was very hard for them to track, right? Today, you know, as, as I was saying, Kevin Rashid Johnson was talking about revolutionary, uh, well, revolutionary intercommunalism is what we need to create um, because reactionary intercommunalism creates a situation where, you know, for example, even the Philippine uh, liberation struggle now is frustrated by the fact that there is no national bourgeoisie, uh, which you could often do in a struggle like that before in the classical, in the age of classical imperialism, you would have a national bourgeoisie still, but now national bourgeoisies have been pretty well eradicated and you just have these comprador classes. Nowhere is that more the case than Japan. Just, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the bureaucrats here, uh, America says jump, they say how high. Uh, you know, I was just watching a series of old uh, footage of the process of sort of selling the privatization of the Japanese Postal Service, which also served as the world's largest bank at the time in terms of uh, deposits. It was certainly the largest that was independent from the Anglo-American financial system. And its deposits could not be used for, um, what do you say, unio, like for uh, generating, you know, money making money on the, on the markets, right? And uh, this Clinton, all the way back in the Clinton era, they were demanding with their yearly list of demands. They just literally come with a list of demands every year and say, do this, do that. And uh, for 20 years, they were agitating for that money to be 
uh, handed over and thrown into the uh, the Anglo-American finance uh, financial system. Uh, all the grandmas and grandpas pensions and uh, you know it end pension funds is maybe a, a, special, a separate thing, but um, the savings, right? Uh, there's tons and tons of savings built up over the years of the welfare state. And looting all of that money is the only source of revenue uh, for certainly a country like Japan. That's the only way to get rich in Japan today. So anybody that's like ambitious or something, you want to be ambitious, you go make money as, as some kind of a comprador. You make money as some kind of a um, deflator of government coffers, public funds, right? Pillaging those. Resources, you know, is the only uh, going concern. And uh, I, that should be a familiar story from all kinds of different places. But, yeah, that's, that's definitely the case in Japan. Uh, so, yeah, they've got the people. They've got people in the meetings now. They've got uh, informants now. They've got, you know, everybody's wearing a fucking mic. Uh, you want to talk about that at the age of the smartphone and so on. But back then, right, back then, they didn't have that, you know, so these FBI documents. Um, Professor Horn is, is drawing on those, and then he's also drawing on all of these records from Hong Kong. You know, he doesn't have Japanese, but he has read, like, all the books that uh, Japanologists have written about this, this time period in English. Uh, and so, yeah, it's really, I mean, typically, typically amazing stuff. But uh, maybe even more so in this case, right? Uh, so, but they knew that the, they had uh, Japanese agents going in and infiltrating uh, African American organizing, you know, largely not the common term type, right? Uh, but even even very very much like James Baldwin, you know, he has quotes from James Baldwin talking about how his mother. And every night when she would say her prayers, she would get the family together and pray for the Chinese and the Japanese. And it was this great sense that they were our, our colored brothers, you know, our, our fellow non-white peoples. And look at all the great stuff that they're doing. And just very specifically, that would be industrializing, building trains, building warships, using them to defeat Russia and so on, uh, in the Russo-Japanese War, right? They defeated Tsarist Russia. And there's this long... That's another thing you could trace through uh, certainly someone like Huey P. Newton, uh, right? He goes to China, um, right? The, seeing the Cultural Revolution. I was just watching a, a video, very offhandedly, they mention in this video showing Olympic ice skaters practicing with rollerblades, what we would instantly recognize as rollerblades. And the white American narrator says, uh, the people of uh, China have been just working together and coming up with all of these great new in inventions that, that uh, and a new kind of invention. This invention allows them to practice uh, ice skating, even in the summer, even in the south of China. And they're riding fucking rollerblades. We would recognize that as rollerblades. And there's a lot of other stuff that the people of China, without any kind of patent or like intellectual property behind it, so of course it immediately got stolen. But uh, they invented all kinds of things. 
during the Cultural Revolution. And it's completely forgotten. Uh, you got to check out The Return of the Repressed, Marcus's episode on the Forward are fantastic. It's a real kind of um, Holodomor debunk kind of thing that uh, you, you don't see as much for, for China, but it's a great thing. I would highly recommend that. So they invented, you know, they were really getting down. They were doing it everything, you know? They were, I mean, God. Uh, check out my Discord, right, to see. Um, that is on there if you'd like to, to see it. So to, to see that, right? I mean, there is, and there is this great solidarity throughout, but I think maybe it's been forgotten somewhat. I don't know. Maybe you can, people who know more, people who are new African, right? Uh, you know, sound off in the comments. Uh, tell me more, but uh, it, it seems like there's less of that, and it's certainly in the popular imagination, it is less known that this solidarity once existed. Although I will add, of course, now we have the dumbest question today, sort of to what extent should people be aligning themselves with China uh, as it currently exists? And it's similar questions, really, right, to, to Imperial Japan. If you, uh, I mean, I would say if you are honest about the very much non-communist elements that are uh, still in control of a lot of a lot of parts of the Chinese economy, also internationally, I mean, come on, they're allied with Israel. They funded the Mujahideen. They're directly helping to crush uh, the Maoist indigenous insurgency in the mountains in the Philippines. Well, but is it still uh, capable of doing some real great stuff? You know, there are still a lot of great people. There's still a lot of great energy there. Uh, it's playing a positive role in uh, reducing American unipolar domination of the globe, etc. That's all there. So these questions, it's an extremely relevant book for this moment. But we've forgotten that history, right? Because... Well, because so many of these groups have achieved honorary white status. And isn't that part of what uh, people were talking for a little while uh, with um, maybe the second election of Trump, you know, the Trump-Biden election. People were sort of whispering about, oh boy, he's picking up more. Uh, he even picked up more of the black vote. But mostly I remember talk about the Hispanic vote. He's picking up more Hispanic vote, and why would that be? You know, I mean, this would break the brain of a liberal. But if you understand that whiteness is fluid, and you can buy your way into whiteness by becoming taking on this bourgeois identity that is the true nature of whiteness, well, then you get you get it. This is what's going on, uh, and that already happened for uh, a lot of Asian people, but maybe Japan. Most of all, it has become the honorary white Asian nation, right? But there was a time before that was true. And all of these stories surrounding the Japan's invasion of Hong Kong really show that up in just a stark way, right? And Horn sets the, sets the scene extremely well by going into just what the kind of racism and the kind of deprivation that Chinese people faced uh, in uh, colonial 
British-ruled colonial China, uh, Hong Kong first of all. You know, all the white people would be living up at the top of the hills, and even very prominent uh, Chinese business people could not live up there at that time. And so when uh, Japan's invasion came, it, it was it was a world historical event, and the the accounts of just breakdown, just mental breakdown, just loss of memory. Uh, the white people who are interned in Stanley in a, a kind of relocation camp there uh, are just stunned. They're just they're they're undergoing memory loss. They're <laughs> just like can cannot believe it. it was such a shock to have a non-white country do this to the empire, the strongest empire that the world had ever seen, you know, the British Empire in which the sun never set. Now here, of course, there is the other side, and, and Professor Horn at no point uh, excludes this from the discussion. Uh, and the snippets I've read of the second book, right, the first book is Race War, the second book that he's done on this topic is Facing the Rising Sun. Right. And that's a line from uh, the Black National Anthem, which was written uh, shortly after the uh, emancipation. Right? It goes, I would never want to sing it in the, in the first person. Uh, but doesn't it go something like, Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies of liberty. May your rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. May it resound loud as the rolling sea. Ye have come. Over a way that with tears has been watered, you have come, treading a path through the blood of the slaughter, facing the rising sun of your new day begun. Let us march on till victory is won. This has been a preview of a premium episode of the Kingless Generation podcast. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear the rest, just head on down to patreon.com slash irregnata. That's I-R-R-E-G-N-A-T-A, unruled in Latin, feminine singular. And for the low proletarian price of three thirty three a month, you get access to all past and future premium episodes, as well as the Discord server where, with your fellow members of the Kingless Generation, you can study, share materials related to episodes uh, on this podcast and also anything else to learn about the history of relations of production, to study and plan and organize how to uh, build the kingless generation. I hope to see you on there.